You may be seated. Our sermon text today is Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10. And you may have noticed that our sermon texts throughout this season of Advent have been from uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, rather than choosing uh, you know, to go th- straight through the book, though, we've picked different passages of Scripture that, that speak messianically, talking of the Christ who was to come. There is no lack of such passages in the book of Isaiah. Many passages look forward to the coming of Christ, so much so that that some refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel in addition to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, even though it was written some 700 years before the birth of our Lord. Uh, We're not going chapter by chapter, like I said, through the book of Isaiah, and that does cause some problems at times, often a text is intended to be read specifically within the context in which it is found. And so when we kind of jump around as we have been doing, that can cause some problems. And today's text is, is one such text that would help to have the context with it. Uh, chapters 34 and 35 really complement each other well, so much so that we could really read the two of them together. Uh, Isaiah 34 speaks about the coming of the Lord. But in Isaiah 34, he, he comes in judgment as a response to our fallenness and our brokenness and our lostness. But we're going to look today at at Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, he comes once more. But contrasting to the judgment of the Lord in Isaiah 34, he comes in glorious grace, responding graciously to our brokenness, fallenness, and lostness in such a way that can only bring us Would you follow along as I read from Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10? But before we do, let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have given us not just a reason to be joyful, but you have given us joy itself in Christ Jesus. And so we just pray that through your spirit dwelling in us, that indeed we might exhibit that joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the inspired word of God. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come. And save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap 
like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will indeed stand forever. As we look at our text today, it is a a far-reaching text, and it, it goes through a lot of different territory, but I think if we were to find one part of the text around which everything kind of centers, I think we would want to look to verse 4, where Isaiah the prophet says to us, or God says to him, saying to us, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Do you ever have an anxious heart? I know there are times that I do. There's much in the world about which we might be anxious, right? Day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, all kinds of Troubles in this broken, fallen world assail us. Right? We, have, we have family problems, we have health problems, we have financial problems, we have physical problems where our bodies are breaking down. We have all kinds of issues that we face as we walk through this life. We look at the world around us and we, like the people in Isaiah's day, have much to fear, much about which to be anxious But the prophet comes to us assuring us that that we can be joyful even in the face of these things. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Isn't that a wonderful encouragement? He, He doesn't say that in this moment you will not have any trouble. No. In fact, Jesus tells us the very opposite is true. But the promise is that even in the face of our troubles, we can still have joy. Our joy is not bound to our circumstances, but rather is found somewhere else. So no matter how bad it gets, we can be sure that our God will come and save us. That's what the text tells us today, and and the text gives us a picture of what it will look like when he does come and saves us completely in outlining the fallen that will be set right, the broken that will be made whole, and the lost that will be found. First, the fallen being set 
right? If we're going to have a, a proper understanding of ourselves and of our God and of life as a whole, it's really necessary that we go back to the beginning. We go back to the garden. We understand that, that we were created, human beings, Adam, Eve, in all perfection, placed in a place of all perfection. And before sin had entered into the world, there were no problems. There was no sorrow. There was no fallenness, no brokenness, no lostness. But sin enters into the world through Adam's sin. We read in Genesis 3 how Adam fell and Eve with him. And in the garden when they were, were tempted by Satan, immediate repercussions fell upon them once they sinned. You know, we usually do a, a decent job, I think, of focusing on how sin damaged the relationship between Adam and God, right? Uh, you know, God came to walk with Adam in the cool of the day, and we see that contrary to the perfect fellowship that Adam had had before his sin, Adam now runs and hides from God instead of having the sweet beautiful fellowship with him. We see also how it damaged not just the relationship between God and man, but, but between man and others, right? Look at Adam and Eve who had been totally comfortable with each other, totally open with each other in every way. You know, we we're told that they were naked but not ashamed. But what's the first thing they do in their sin is they go and clothe themselves. They hide themselves one from another. That relationship has been damaged as well, but it's not just the relationships that are broken by sin. We often look to Genesis 3:15, that great first telling of the gospel when God curses the serpent and tells him, promising us, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his head. Heal. It's that first promise that there is one who is coming who will, who will redeem us, who will, who will bring payment for our sin, who will crush the serpent and therein be bruised himself. But if we go just a couple verses past that in, in chapter 3, verse 17 of Genesis, we see that God did indeed curse Adam and Eve on account of their sin. To Adam he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. The creation itself fell with Adam. Before Adam's sin, creation was was perfectly comfortable, a, a source of nothing but joy and provision, but now it became a source of burden, a source of toil, and a source of pain. And creation ever since has been a source of pain for us. It is broken, corrupted, and does not function as it should. Paul says in Romans 8, Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We see this, don't we, on a small scale, you know, when we do yard work, right? I, I've often said before that I wish that, that the flowers would always be in bloom, right? That they would gloriously bloom and, and they would never lose their petals and they would just be beautiful all the time. And, and the reality is that even if you want to have them be that way at all, it requires a lot of work, a lot of toil. And even then it only lasts for a while. And, and I wish that the leaves on the trees would be autumnal in their colors, but stay there and not fall. But instead they turn brown and dry and they die. And they fall to the ground and we're left to rake them up. And if our neighbors don't rake up their leaves the same weekend we rake up our leaves, then we have to rake up our leaves again because the neighbor's leaves get in our yard, right? It is a source of trouble. And this is a small-scale thing. We chuckle about it, but creation has fallen and broken on a much larger scale than that as well. We see it every time there's some kind of natural disaster, a drought, a tornado, a, a hurricane, a tsunami, an earthquake. We, we seize these things and we are reminded the creation itself is broken, it is fallen, it is damaged, and it hurts. But here's the good news, it will not always be this way. For when the king returns, he who created all things, by whom they all existed and are maintained, he who upholds the universe by the word of his power will set all things to rights. And that's why I think Paul uses this term, and it's such a perfect term when he spoke of, in Romans 8, the, the pains of childbirth, how, how creation groans in the pains of childbirth. It, it's very similar, is it not? Because the pain of childbirth is, is a serious, serious pain, right? I know that when, when Jack was born, I remember that being, being one of the most agonizing things I have ever gone through. And it was probably at least 5% harder for Aaron. <laughs> Maybe a little more, huh? It's an agonizing thing. And yet, this agonizing, terrible pain yields to the most glorious of joys, does it not? It yields to this wonderful life-consuming joy. And so it is that Paul uses this analogy. He talks how creation groans in the pains of childbirth, right? It is in the midst of this agony right now, but there is a day coming when there is the most wonderfully great joy that will burst forth onto the scene in this creation. And we look forward to that day Isaiah describes it in this chapter. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. The blossom like the crocus. The old King James Version actually says like the rose. It really doesn't matter which flower we choose. The idea is that 
that it will blossom into a new and beautiful form. And Isaiah picks up on this in verse 2. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Think of the transformation that takes place, even, even right here in, in our world, in our community, in spring each year. Right After month upon month, our landscape had been gray and dingy and, and, and largely devo- devoid of any evidence of life. And then all of a sudden in spring, beauty bursts forth in color as flowers bloom and trees regain their leaves and spring comes and, and life and joy is present once again. Isaiah says that such a transformation on an even greater scale, I dare say on an infinitely greater scale, will burst onto the scene when the Lord Jesus returns, when he brings about the consummation of his kingdom. Isaiah says that it will take place as even the wilderness and the desert will be transformed. The idea of the wilderness and the de- desert have, have a, a very meaningful history within those to whom, to whom Isaiah wrote, right? We think of the 40 years spent in the wilderness, wandering the people of God, lost in their sin, unable to enter into the promised land as they wandered in unfaithfulness. Or perhaps we remember that Isaiah is speaking prophetically here, and, and perhaps even talking to those who will one day be returning from exile in Babylon, wandering through the wilderness, through the desert, trying to come back to the promised land. Really, it is a word for us as well as we wander through the wilderness of this world, looking for the promised land of God, which we will one day inhabit. But we need to not allegorize it too much, not use it too much as a metaphor. We need to realize that that the desert was a very real thing. It was a place where people starved, where where people were dehydrated, where people were attacked either by by beasts or, or by robbers along the road. It was a place of death. And into each of those situations, God comes into them and says, says, this will no longer be the case. I will give my grace to my people. I will protect them. I will care for them. And there will be beauty and glory and life. And that's why Isaiah can speak of a day in verse 6 where the waters break forth in the wilderness, the streams of the desert, the burning sand shall come, a pool in the thirsty ground springs of water, in the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. The desert itself will become an oasis, a place of life, a place of refreshment. And all of creation, which has been so long groaning, will in a moment rejoice. As the great hymnist Isaac Watts put it, fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains will repeat the sounding joy. What a day that will be. Our hearts long for such a day, don't they, in the midst of our our pain and our sorrow. 
But it's not just our world that so desperately is in need of being made right, is it? We too are broken. I've shared before my my favorite quote from Herman Melville's Moby Dick, where Ishmael says, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. So true. It applies for Baptists too, but I mean, you know, it, it works really well for us though. <laughs> because we are dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. We are broken people. Broken not just because others have sinned against us, but broken because of our own sin. We do not live as we should. We do not experience the joy that we should as a result. We are sinners, spiritually broken. But we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. First, I want to point to the fact that Isaiah speaks of a physical sign that points to this spiritual reality. He speaks of how the broken are made well. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. More and more I relate to this. Uh, just the other day, Aaron gave me a jar to open, and, and I started to try to open it, and my hand just hurt as I was trying to open it, and I, I couldn't, and I had to put it down, and I had to kind of stretch out my fingers and warm up my hands and loosen up, and, and finally was able to get it, but my hands were just feeble. They're not, not as strong as they once were. They're getting older, and my knees, every time I go up and down the stairs, I kind of feel it now. You know, and I suppose with each passing year, the, that will probably become more and more evident in my own life. Understand this idea of weak hands and feeble knees. But Isaiah goes on to talk about more serious element, ailments in verses 5 and 6, doesn't he? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Those are, those are some wonderful promises there dealing with some very serious ailments. Right? Being blind, deaf, lame, mute. The Lord gives this vision to Isaiah so that it might be an encouragement to the people of God in the midst of their discouragements, whatever that discouragement might be. For in Isaiah's day, they were facing potential exile. It seemed to them that perhaps God was even against them. And in the face of God's acts of judgment, especially people knew their weakness, their feebleness, their brokenness. Have you ever felt like this before? Paul asked earlier, do you ever feel just the pangs of doubt? Does it ever feel like God is against you or has, has just deserted you? It is a real thing that we all face. And if you feel today like you are broken and alone, forsaken by God, let me give you two words of encouragement. First of all, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Because our Lord, who had since eternity past, had perfect fellowship with his Father, dwelling in perfect union with him decided to take on human flesh in agreement with the Father 
and the Spirit, the perfect plan of the triune God to take on human flesh, to become like us, to be a little baby laid in a manger. And he did that knowing that the path upon which he was set led directly to Calvary's cross. And he knew that the weight of the Father's wrath would fall upon him there and that there would be a day where he would cry out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you feel forsaken by God, know that Jesus knows your pain. He knows your sorrow. It is not something far off from him. He knows what it feels like because he was willing to be forsaken on our account so that we could be sure that in the end we would not be forsaken by God, but rather would know his grace and his forgiveness through Christ Jesus. And we can be sure that he will be faithful to us to the end, for he has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, be comforted by this. Jesus will do something about it. Yes, he will. With the first advent of Jesus, his kingdom was inaugurated. And, and there he came, and, and he had miracles of healing like we saw earlier talking about the unison scripture reading today. But, but we need to realize that those miracles of healing were not just uh, magic tricks where Jesus was showing how powerful he was. Right? They were signs. They were pointing to the fact that he was the coming king, that he was the Messiah, the one for whom they had been waiting. Just as John sent his messengers while he was in jail, he's, he's awaiting his own death at this point. And he's wondering, maybe I was wrong. He sends messengers, Jesus, are you really the one? And Jesus says to those messengers, go back and tell John, what you've seen. You go back and tell him. Tell him about the healings that you've seen here. Tell him how these things are happening. You see, he knew that John would know about Isaiah 35, right? Where, where Isaiah 35 says that when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And that is what was happening. He's saying, yes, I am indeed the coming of king. I am indeed the long-awaited Messiah. I've inaugurated the renewal of all things, and we'll bring it to completion at the day of my return. And so this Advent, as we look forward to the celebration of Christ's first advent, celebrating his birth, let us do so with an eye toward his second coming as well. That, that season when he, that day when he will come to set all things to rights, where he will fix all that is broken. No longer will my hands ache when I open a jar, my knees ache when I climb the stairs. Because all will be set right. It will be be fixed all that is broken will be made well what a wonderful promise that is but it's not just the physical it's the spiritual as well like i said before and let's go back to that real quick and we see it 
how the lost will find their way. It's interesting. He says here, a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. Uh, it, it evokes the thoughts of the pilgrimages that people took to Jerusalem. And, and the highways would run from every city to, to Jerusalem. That's where they would go. And if they were going to Jerusalem, it was to make sacrifices, to, to be forgiven of their sins, to, to be made holy in the eyes of God, to meet with God and to experience fellowship with him. And this is precisely what, what kind of highway Christ paves for us, right? Because in his living a perfectly righteous life, in his dying an atoning death, in his binding us together with himself through faith by the power of his spirit, he, he has become our sacrifice that we might be forgiven of our sin, that, that we might be made holy, that we might meet with God and experience perfect fellowship with him. This is the gospel. This is the gospel, my friends. Turn to Christ Jesus in faith and know that salvation is yours, holiness is yours, fellowship with God is yours through him and him alone. For he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. John Calvin comments in talking about the verses we looked at before about the blind and the deaf and so forth. He says, by the tongue and ears and feet, he means all the faculties of our soul, which in themselves are so corrupt that nothing that is good can be obtained from them till they are restored by the kindness of Christ. He continues, the eyes cannot see what is right, the ears cannot hear, the feet cannot guide us in the right way till they are united to Christ. But united to Christ, we find the one and only way that we can have fellowship with God. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So it shall belong, Isaiah writes in verse 8, to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. You see, the idea is that we're not saved because we're smarter than the people who haven't figured it out. It's not because we're better than the people who, who haven't achieved it. No. It's purely by the grace of God. He has chosen for his purposes, by his will, to reach down and touch us and give us his grace, to give us new life, to give us the ability to turn to him and even beyond that to actually grab us and turn us around. So that eternal life is not anything we have done, but something he has done for us. As Jesus says in John 10, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's why Isaiah can say in verse 8 and 9, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. We need fear nothing if we are his. What a glorious truth that is. The beasts that might ravage us, that might seek to deceive and devour us are no match against the coming 
king who shall return and take us to be his home. And the redeemed shall walk there. Redeemed, the idea of being purchased out of slavery, and we have been purchased out of slavery, bought by the blood of Christ, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come home to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It will just be gone. Sorrow and sadness never again. Pure, unadulterated joy. How does that happen? Back in verse 4, remember. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. He has come with recompense and vengeance. Payment has been made for our sins. The sword of judgment has fallen. But whereas it should have fallen on us, it has fallen instead on Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Paschal Lamb who was sacrificed as an offering for our sin, the Passover Lamb who was slain, whose blood was applied to us that we need not fear the angel of death. Therefore, be strong. Fear not. This is why Jesus came. So that we can rightfully proclaim that which we are about to sing. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. But our joy will be even greater in his day when he returns, his kingdom, which has been inaugurated with his first coming, will be consummated in that second coming. And he will eradicate all fallenness, all brokenness, all lostness. And on that day, we will be able to see that which we will, in a moment, sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. For the Lord will come. The Savior will reign. And we will bask in the glow of his glory and the wonders of his love. Joy to the world indeed. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do rejoice, not because of anything we have done, but because of what you have done. We rejoice for what you have done, for what you are doing, and what you will do. We are just as sure as that which you will do as we are of that which you have done, because you are unchanging, you are sure, you are faithful, and so we rejoice now today for that which you will accomplish. And we sing of our joy even now. Be with us that we might rejoice always. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you rise now as we sing hymn number 299.